Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. So today, since we are officially in the Halloween season and in a Halloween mood, which I always am, we're going to do something kind of similar to the two Six Impossible episodes we've had in the past. But these are going to be uh, two, so it's kind of like a history mystery double feature, and it's going to be two unsolved mysteries, completely unrelated except for the fact that they both took place in the 1920s. And both of these topics have been requested by listeners. Both are really quite fascinating, but because of the open-ended nature of each of them and a relative lack of evidence, trying to piece together an entire episode on each would have involved a lot of speculation rather than actual history. So we're sticking to actual things we know for the most part, and you're getting a two-for-one. So also, I wanted to include a quick trigger warning. This episode does include the discussion of some rather gory and violent things, including violence against children. Uh, we're not going to get especially graphic about it, but if that's something that you're just not comfortable hearing about in any form, or if you have younger listeners that you would rather shield from that for the moment. Uh, the second story in our duo might not be for you. So first, we are going to get started with the story of Glenn and Bessie Hyde. And this one was requested most recently by our listener, Joseph. In 1928, newlyweds Glenn and Bessie Hyde decided to start their marriage by trying to make history. They're going to travel the entire length of the Grand Canyon by boat. So if that doesn't sound all that ambitious to you, please rest assured that, in fact, it was. Up to that point, remember this is 1928, only 45 people had managed to travel the full length of the Grand Canyon by river. And a woman had never done it. And Bessie wanted to be the first, and Glenn wanted to be the fastest. The 45 who had successfully made the trip before the Hides had all done so in rowboats, some of them modified. But Glenn and Bessie wanted to do it in a, a sweep scow. Glenn, who was almost 30 at the time, had plenty of boating experience. Growing up, he boated on the Skeena River in British Columbia with his family by canoe on a regular basis. And when Glenn was 21, he and a friend had actually taken a six-month trip down Canada's Peace River by canoe. And then in 1926, he traveled on a sweep scow with his sister from the Salmon River in Idaho all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Bessie didn't have the same boating experience that Glenn did. She was more of an artist than an outdoors woman, and she was a graduate of the California School of Fine Art in San Francisco. She was full of adventurous spirit. And the pair met in February of 1927 on a passenger ship, and they got married a little more than a year later in Twin Falls, Idaho, on April 12th of 1928. That was an interesting date because it was also the 16th anniversary of the Titanic sinking. And it was also just one day after Bessie's divorce from her first husband was finalized. Part of their motivation for this daring honeymoon that often comes up is the idea that they could monetize a successful trip down the canyon. Two expeditions with film crews down the river in 1927 had garnered a lot of media attention, one of them because it went very poorly and required a rescue. If Bessie could make it down the river, she would make history as the first woman to do so. And if Glenn could do it in record time, opportunities like book deals and lecture bookings would probably follow. However, that is uh, the commonly written about reason for all of this. Uh, but Brad Dimmock, who wrote a book about Glenn and Bessie cut, titled Sunk Without a Sound, actually came into possession of a letter from Bessie to her aunt and uncle, Ruth and Millard Haley, after his book had been completed and published. And he uh, posted this online with some commentary. And in this letter, Bessie writes excitedly about the trip 
And there's not a single mention, though, about any of these ambitions in the way of a, of publicity or book deals or fame. So it's entirely possible that that fame and money-making angle that is often retold in this whole story is one of those embellishments that has sort of grown around the story as time has moved the actual details out of clear focus. Glenn spent $50 and two days putting together the boat, which they named Rain in the Face, and they prepped it with a bed survival supplies, and journals awaiting their documentation of the journey. They did not pack any life jackets, and they started their journey on October 20th with a plan to arrive in Needles, California on December 9th. Yeah, so at this point, they had only been married about six months. And initially, the Hydes did successfully navigate several sections of the river. Several weeks into the journey, on November 16th, they stopped at Grand Canyon Village on the South Rim in order to get fresh supplies. And while there, they actually spoke with a Denver Post reporter about their adventure. They also met up with Ellsworth and Emery Kolb, who were well-known boatmen and even better-known photographers, who had a studio on the cliffside. Emery Kolb wanted to give them life jackets, but Glenn turned them down. Cole would later say that it seemed like Bessie seemed nervous and wanted to quit, but that Glenn was urging her on. And famously, Bessie is quoted as saying, I wonder if I'll ever wear pretty shoes again, as she looked at Emery's daughter's footwear. Then when they returned to the river with their resupply of provisions, they met up with Adolf G. Sutro. This is not the Adolf Sutro who was the mayor of San Francisco in the 1890s. It was, in fact, his grandson. And Sutro asked if he could ride along with them in their scow for a day or so. And the Hydes agreed, and Sutro traveled the next eight miles of river with them. When they dropped him off at Hermit Creek on November 18th, it would be the last time anyone saw them. Glenn and Bessie did not arrive in Needles on December 9th as planned. When Glenn's expectant father, Roland Hyde, received no word of their landing at the prearranged date and location, he immediately feared that something had gone wrong. Roland Hyde launched a massive search effort to find Glenn and Bessie. There were search parties tasked with canvassing sections of the river, so multiple searches were going on at one time in different places. Native American trackers were recruited to see if they could find any evidence of the pair moving over land. And eventually even an aerial search was authorized by the U.S. Secretary of War, so they actually used military planes to look for them. After days of searching, the Hyde scow was spotted in the aerial sweep. And was sitting in the middle of the river at mile 237. Emery Kolb and his brother joined Roland Hyde, and the trio traveled to Peach Springs, Arizona, where they hiked down to the mouth of Diamond Creek, located at mile 225. There a boat sat awaiting repair. The Kolb brothers took several days to get the reclaimed boat water ready, and then they headed to the location where the scow had been spotted. Roland did not go with them. When they reached the rain in the face, it was December 24th. The boat was completely intact. All of the supplies that Glenn and Bessie had packed remained, and everything was tidy and stowed properly. It did not look like it had been shifted about in some sort of dangerous event. Uh, the Cold Brothers photographed the scene, them being quite well-known photographers. We actually have some really good pictures in terms of uh, capturing what they found. And then they returned to Roland Hyde. They gathered as much as they could take with them, and they told him that it did not appear that Glenn and Bessie had left their boat intentionally. Based on Bessie's diary, which was found in the boat, the 232-mile rapid was likely the last section of river that they ran. They had made it 600 miles on the Green and Colorado Rivers. 
the boat was found just 46 miles from the mouth of the Grand Canyon. And according to the details of the journal, they had actually been ahead of schedule. Yeah, so they had been moving along quite well. They were ahead of schedule. They were very close to the end. Uh, but we, they were simply not there when they went to look for them. And while I, I want to be clear when I say that all of their supplies were stowed, they were in the places you would expect them to be during normal use. They weren't stowed, like packed away, like they had, had left the boat and they were going off somewhere else. But before we wrap up the Glenn and Bessie Hyde story, uh, let's pause for a brief word from one of our fabulous sponsors. Sounds good. It was not long before most people and most news outlets declared that the newlyweds must be dead. Their bodies were not ever found, though, although Roland later did return to search for them. Yeah, he even went back the following winter to search for them. He kind of looked in different conditions, hoping that he would find them, but nothing ever turned up. So what happened to the newlyweds remains a mystery. Although, of course, in cases like this, numerous theories have arisen. Were the hides murdered? Did they drown? A few interesting possibilities have cropped up over the years that kind of get repeated over and over. In 1971, during a commercial boating trip, while the participants were sitting around a campfire, an elderly woman claimed to be Bessie. When the woman was questioned by one of the other attendees about Glenn, she said she had stabbed him after a fight and then hiked to Peach Springs, Arizona, and gotten on a bus going east, where she started a new life. Investigation unearthed a far more mundane story that she was simply a retired lady who liked to pull people's legs. Yeah, it seems really cool. Uh, and it's one of those things I always have to chuckle a little bit. If you read sort of brief descriptions of this, they'll talk about all of the possibilities, but they never talk about the more mundane things that get turned up if you look more closely, of course. Uh, and then later in 1976, a skull with a bullet hole in it was found on Emery Kolb's property, and rumors started to circulate that it could be Glenn's. However, forensics ruled out that possibility. That man, who I don't believe has ever been identified had died no earlier, according to this, to testing, than 1972, and he was only 22 at the time, so he could not possibly have been Glenn. Another river guide, a woman named Georgie Clark, died in 1992, and among her belongings was found the Hyde's marriage certificate. So, question coming up, was she Bessie? There was also a birth certificate indicating that her name was Bessie DeRoss, not Georgie, which has also fueled some speculation. But none of these claims have been substantiated. Yeah, a number of historians have weighed in on it. And after closer investigation, they really don't feel like this is the real deal. So they uh, don't think the, uh, the documents are authentic or? Right. Okay. Um, or that like possibly one is, but not the other. It would be weird if Bessie had vanished on the river and she happened to have her birth certificate and marriage certificate with her. Like, those aren't things you take on a boating trip. <laughs> uh, at least it's not anything I would take on a boating trip, but uh, those are just some food for thought. So we really don't know. The, um, you know, speculation will probably go on forever because at this point we are almost a 100 years out. We're 90 years out or so. And, you know, we're not... Not likely going to get any big answers on those. Uh, and that brings us to the second of our sort of creepy story double feature. This is uh insanely creepy, in my opinion. It's also often very requested, 
most recently it was requested by our listener Stacy. And while it is a great story and one that I have always found fascinating and have debated about trying to put a standalone episode together around it, there just really is not enough to go on. Uh, so that's the scoop on this one. We are talking about the Hinterkaifeck murders. This is a long-standing unsolved crime, and it's one of the most famous in German history. So the word Hinterkaifeck, uh, I think part of the reason that this one gets so much excitement is that it sounds exotic because it's foreign to any English listeners, but uh, English-speaking listeners. But in fact, that is uh, actually the name of the farm where these murders took place. Hinter, if I'm remembering my very sloppy appreciation of German correctly, usually means behind. Uh, and this was behind an area that would have been called Kafek. This farmstead was about 300 meters from Grubern, uh, and that was in the Bavarian municipality of Wangen, which is now the municipality of Wedhofen. And the farm was about a kilometer away from the town of Kafek. So like I said, it, the, the name literally meant behind Kafek. And it was a relatively isolated farmstead. Living at Hinter Kafek in 1922, when this happened, were farmer Andreas Gruber, who was 63, his wife Kazilia, who was 72, their daughter Victoria, age 35, who was a widow, and Victoria's two children, one also named Kazia, who was seven, and Joseph, who was two. In addition to the family, a brand new maid named Maria Bumgartner, age 44, was at the farm as well. And we mean, we mean super brand new. She had started work the very day that these events we're going to talk about came to a crescendo. The previous maid that they had 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 quit rather abruptly six months prior in the autumn of 1921. And the story goes that she very frankly told them that she believed that the farm was haunted and that she wanted to leave right away. And she believed that because she heard noises, both footsteps and voices, she claimed, coming from the attic. On March 30th, 1922, Andreas Gruber made an odd discovery. He found footprints in the snow leading from the edge of the forest to his farm. There was no matching set leading back into the woods. My heart is beating a little faster having read that sentence. He also found evidence that someone had tried to pick the lock on his garage. He told his neighbors that he had found a strange paper left at the house and had heard strange noises in the attic. A set of keys had also vanished. And upon hearing about these strange events, um, we should include that Gruber checked them out. He looked in the attic and he found nobody. And he, you know, looked around for his keys and he tried to think of any way that the newspaper could have gotten. I believe it was on his porch. Uh, but the, he he never found anybody or anything. He just kind of shrugged it off. So when he was telling his neighbors about these strange events, one of them actually offered him a revolver for self-defense because it sounded really creepy to them. Uh, but Gruber actually turned that offer down. I'm just going to imagine that somebody walked really carefully in their same footprints on the way back from the house to the edge of the forest. <laughs> on Saturday, April 1st, the younger Kazia missed school. On April 2nd, the entire family of failed to appear at church, which was extremely unusual. On Monday, April 3rd, Kazia was once again absent from school, and when the postman attempted to deliver mail that day, he noticed Saturday's mail was still in the box. When nobody answered his knock, he just left that day's mail. 
A mechanic named Albert Hoffner went to the farm on April 4th to complete some repairs to a piece of machinery that he had been contracted to do. And he knocked. He didn't get any answer. And he saw no one. But he knew what he had to do. So he went ahead and repaired the feeding machine. It took him about five hours. And during that time, he saw no one. And he left. And he did mention to neighbors as he left, hey, I didn't see any of the Groobers, but I was there and I fixed their machine. So let them know. And that's where things started to get a little suspicious. So later in the afternoon of April 4th, neighbors finally decided to check in on the Groobers. Nobody had seen any of them for several days. When nobody answered any of their knocks or calls, they noticed that the barn doors were locked. So they broke in. And before we get to the barn discovery and some truly creepy and probably unsettling for some listeners elements of this story that come out after that, uh, we're going to pause for a sponsor break so we don't have to drop it right into the middle of any gruesome discussion. So what these neighbors found in this barn that they broke into was horrifying, to say the least. In the barn were four corpses. These were the bodies of Andreas, Casilia, the elder, Victoria, and the child, Casilia. The bodies had been covered over with straw and then an old door had been placed on top of it. Further investigation revealed that the maid, Maria Baumgartner, and the tiny Joseph had been murdered in the farmhouse. A young man was sent by bicycle to Wangen to summon the authorities. By the time the investigators got there, though, there was already a crowd milling about contaminating evidence. I feel like crowds should always listen to our podcast because this is a recurring theme. And when the crowd t- came and they tromped all over everything. When we time travel, that can be our uh, our entire mission is to go tell crowds not to go contaminate evidence. So allegedly, some of the crowd were even in the kitchen making snacks for other people. Yeah. So needless to say, evidence was going to be pretty dicey at that point. Uh, autopsies were carried out on site in the barn, I believe, by Dr. Johann Baptiste Almuller. And it was determined that on the night of March 31st, 1922, the six people had each been brutally attacked with blows to the head. Despite some of the the, uh, contamination of the evidence, investigators were able to piece things together enough to come to the conclusion that the four members of the family who had been killed in the barn had been lured there one by one in some way as a sort of trap and kind of lured in and jumped. Andreas's wife, Cazelia, and their daughter, Victoria, also showed signs of strangulation in addition to their head wounds. The younger Cazelia had pieces of her own hair clenched in her right hand. It was postulated that she had not died instantly like the others have and that, that the others had and that she may have torn out her own hair in dismay or shock. The heads of all of the bodies were removed by Dr. Almuller and sent to Munich for additional investigation since that was the area that seemed to have uh, sustained the death blows. And these heads were also allegedly handled by a clairvoyant eventually that was brought in by authorities in a desperate attempt to get any sort of lead in the case. Neither the examiners in Munich nor any of the psychics discovered anything new in the handling of the victims' heads. Numerous details, aside from the grisly killings, made the discovery of the Hinterkaifeck murders really unsettling. While the family had been killed on the night of March 31st, in the days between then and the discovery on April 4th, neighbors had seen smoke coming from the farmhouse chimney. 
Additionally, the animals on the farm had been cared for during that time, and the cows had been milked. It was as though the killer or killers made himself at home for a while after brutally dispatching with the family. Given the fact that Gruber had lost a set of keys and found a random newspaper just prior to the murders, it's entirely possible that the killer may have made himself at home for a while before the events on March 31st. While the a robbery was initially suspected as the motive, there were large sums of cash that were easily found in the house and had obviously been left behind. There were also some roof tiles that appeared to have been drawn back in two places, one uh, over the barn roof, one on the barn roof, and one over the farmhouse. And if I understand descriptions and looked at the photos correctly, there was kind of one big roof that covered the barn, and then there was like a courtyard that had a roof, and then it also continued over to the house. But over the barn and over the house, tiles had been removed so that an intruder that was hidden could have had pretty easy views of both the whole farmstead and the family, depending on where they were positioned. So this family had had problems before they were murdered. They were a well-known family, but not really that popular in the community. Andreas, in particular, had a bad reputation for a number of reasons, One was that he was abusive to his wife. He also was believed to have had an incestuous relationship with his daughter, Victoria, and many believe that young Joseph was, in fact, his child. Uh, It's pretty easy math to note that Joseph had been born about five years after Victoria's husband had died. So he definitely was not a child of that marriage, because remember, he was uh, two when this happened. And at the time of Joseph's birth, a neighboring farmer named Lorenz Schlittenbauer was named as the father of Joseph, but this actually became a really contentious issue. And Schlittenbauer actively claimed that Andreas had fathered his own grandchild. As for suspects, there's a fairly popular theory that Victoria may not have been a widow after all, and that her husband committed the murders. Carl Gabriel died in the trenches in France during World War One, and you'll occasionally find sites that will say things like, but his body was never recovered. There are plenty of eyewitness accounts of him being killed at the Battle of Nubia on December 12, 1914. So it's really sensationalism. But unfortunately, it's also all too common for the bodies of soldiers to go unrecovered in wartime. Yeah, uh, there are some financial reasons that people point to as like what would have been his motivator or that he was angry about the incest. Again, in a case like this where there is not much to go on, it's very easy to fill in the blanks with fanciful thoughts. Uh, another popular theory names that neighbor Lorenz Schlittenbauer as the likely killer due to his entanglement with Victoria, because there is some p- pretty significant indicators that he and Victoria did have some sort of sexual relationship. Um, and this battle that he had with Andreas over whether or not he had fathered Victoria's youngest child. There's also some assertions in there that uh, he may have planned to marry Victoria, but that Andreas was very jealous of her and would not allow her to do so. So there is a lot of drama connected to the Schlittenbauer possibility. The Gruber family and Maria Bumgartner were interred at Weidhofen. Their heads were never returned from Munich, and they're believed to have been lost during World War II. Yeah, ironically, I have never really dug up much that uh, attaches any sort of creepiness to the loss of these six heads. Uh, people just tend to write it off as, you know, World War II, there were lots of crazy things happening, and it's entirely possible that that was simply destroyed. 
Uh, what's also interesting is that during the initial investigation, no murder weapon was found, even though uh, on the autopsy report, it does suggest that it was a pickaxe. Uh, however, when the buildings at the farmstead were torn down a year after all of these events, a mattock was allegedly found. And a mattock is similar to an ice pick. It has a long handle and it has a head that has a cutter on one end and either an axe blade or a pick on the other. A man who sometimes worked as a hand on the farm identified the mattock as belonging to uh, Gruber. It was one that he owned and had, in fact, made. It was normally stored with the rest of the tools and equipment in the tool shed. Yeah, so by virtue of it not having been found when everything happened and the initial investigation happened and only being turned up a year later when they raised the buildings... It does kind of point to it having been out of place, but we don't know. And while dozens of people were questioned in the case, more than a 100, no official suspect was ever named. Uh, this case has been reopened at various points throughout the years. It has never been solved, though. I believe in 2007, there was a university group that did a study of it where they tried to apply modern forensics to what they had. And they came up with who they feel is the most likely killer, but they did not name that person uh, out of respect for the fact that there are surviving relatives of that person. And it would kind of just be dredging up something that couldn't be proven and could potentially taint the family name. Uh, but we basically don't know what happened. We don't know if someone was living in their attic for six months, because remember their previous maid had said quite some time before the murders that she heard voices and weird noises. Or if this was just a one day event that happened. Uh, I will also tell you this as a warning. If you go looking for this online, there are some pretty graphic images taken of the crime scene. So if that is not something you are comfortable looking at or can stomach, I would not Google search this particular thing. Yeah, don't Google it at all. Like the thing, because the, the they very really first, do, yeah, the yeah, first they thing pop up, up in that. Here are some images about this. Yeah, you they're extremely, extremely horrifying. And they are literally the first thing that comes up when you Google it. Uh, it reminds me of creepy stories that keep circulating around the Internet at various times where people are like, I just discovered someone has been secretly, secretly living in this tiny compartment that was in our walls. And yeah, creepy. yeah, it is a very creepy thing. I mean, it's kind of I think one of the reasons that people. I don't want to say love to tell this story because that sounds horrifying, but there is a certain fascination with it. And part of it is that it combines so many of the key elements of like a good scary story. You know, one, there is some gruesome murders. Two, there is this possibility that there is a person watching people for a long time unnoticed. And three, there is all of this weird drama around love triangles and, you know, paternity. And there's just, it has all of the ingredients for a good drama. Which is why people like it so much. I can't remember if I have uh, mentioned this in a previous post Episode wrap up slash listener mail. Uh, there is an eerily similar murder near where I grew up that's uh, similar in that the whole family was bludgeoned to death and there was a, a lot of rumors about whether the father of the family had been having an affair with the daughter. Um, it, it seems like this is a story that crops up repeatedly in terms of whole families being slaughtered with, with uh, questionable things going on in the family's history and relationships. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's very fascinating. Like I said, it's a very fascinating story and I have kind of pr- 
tiptoed around it for a long time going, ooh, when can I start doing it? And I finally just decided to do it, like I said, as a combo with another thing that couldn't quite fill out an episode. So that's in the, in the sense of classic horror drive-in moments ever. It's your podcast double feature. Uh, but now I have listener mail, which is a little bit tragic, but also a little bit fabulous. And it is from our listener, Aaron. And Aaron says, I recently listened to your podcast on the vanishing of the USS Cyclops. And in it, you mentioned the disappearance of Flight 19, which, while tragic, allowed me, my sister, and all my cousins to come into existence. My grandmother was engaged to be married to one of the pilots lost in Flight 19, George Panessa. Unfortunately, after he was lost in the training flight, he was, of course, unable to marry my grandmother. And years later, she met and married my grandfather, leading to six children and ten grandchildren who would not exist if George hadn't been lost. To add to the story, my great aunt married George's brother, Frank. So there is still uh, Panessa blood in my family. A few years ago, there was an Unsolved Mysteries episode regarding Flight 19, which claimed that George reached out to his sister-in-law, ostensibly my great aunt, and said in a letter, I'm fine, don't come looking for me. This never actually happened. The case later revealed a photo of George's alleged girlfriend at the time of his death. This is most definitely not a picture of my grandmother. So the mystery continues. I myself am happy to say that if it were not for the Bermuda Triangle, I would not be who I am today. Uh, I love this for a number of reasons. One, because it is a really great story. But two, it also really does point out, like if you're watching things sometimes on television, you can't always trust the veracity of the things they are telling and showing you. Uh, so that is one of the reasons we try to be really careful with sources. I uh, will confess that when I was doing my Hinterkaifeck research, there's not a lot of English language stuff. So I was going to German sites and translating. So hopefully I did not munge up any of the details in those translations because uh, it is very tricky and I am not uh, fluent in German by a long shot. I know only the tiniest amount. But uh, yeah, so that is our double feature and an interesting touchback on uh, The Vanishing of Flight 19. Thank you, Aaron. That's a cool story. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We are also on Facebook.com slash History, at History on Twitter, at Pinterest.com slash History. We are on Tumblr at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We have an Instagram at History where we uh, kind of share images related to shows and also some other fun. And uh, if you would like to go to our parent site, HowStuffWorks, Type in the words unsolved mysteries and you will come up with a couple of interesting things. One is cliffhangers and cryptograms, the unsolved mystery quiz. And the other is an article I really love called 10 unsolved mysteries that have been solved. Because I will confess that I am a little bit of a skeptic. Uh, and I, <laughs> I like to see things get solved. Uh, and I also just realized that I forgot to do my second piece of listener mail that I wanted to do. So this is really just thanks. We've gotten some really fabulous postcards in the recent past. Uh, one is from our listener. I believe it is Aubrey or Audrey, and I'm sorry I can't get it right, but the um, postal markings have obscured your name. It is a beautiful... Uh, applique postcard from Pagosa Springs, Colorado. It is absolutely gorgeous. We got several that I shared on Instagram recently. One is from, I believe it is pronounced Shane, uh, that is from Disneyland, and it is a gorgeous picture of Belle on her magical float. We got one of a uh, gorilla riding a bicycle from our listener Heather, which I am in love with. It's supposed to be Bigfoot on a bicycle, not a gorilla. I'm sorry. And then we got a really cool one. Uh, the graphic is gorgeous of, of Wikiwachi Springs, and that came from our listener 
listener, Lauren. So thank you all for sending us stuff. I'm trying to make sure we call out some of our cool postcard senders more recently, more uh, in the near future. And like I said, check out on Instagram. Several of these appeared on there. So with that, go visit our parent site, HowStuffWorks.com, and look fabulous things up. Visit us at MissedInHistory.com for episodes, all of them going back to the beginning of time on the podcast, and show notes for all of the ones that Tracy and I have worked on, as well as the occasional other delight. So again, visit us at HowStuffWorks.com and MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 